Good evening. So good to be with you this evening. Such a blessing that God has given us another day to be together. An opportunity to sing praise to Him. and appreciate Brother Clayton leading these songs of praise. This congregation is blessed with a number of fine song leaders. And it is encouraging. It just feeds my heart to be together and to sing praises to God with you. Uh, I've appreciated the elders for the opportunity and the invitation to come and be with you and talk about these things, making this study a priority. I've appreciated greatly the acts of kindness and hospitality that many of you brethren have shown me and having me into your home and sharing with me a, a part of your life. And I certainly appreciate the time spent with Brother Crozier uh, throughout this week. Uh, thus far, it has been iron sharpening iron, and I've been blessed for the time with him, and I'm very thankful to you for it. As we continue in our series tonight, we want to talk about Jehovah or Allah there is one God. And we want to begin by acknowledging that both Islam and Christianity, Christianity are monotheistic religions. And that means that both affirm there is one God and there is only one true God. Of course, uh, Islam teaches this. You find it in the Quran. In Surah 2, verse 163, Your God is one God. There is no God other than He, the compassionate, ever-merciful. And we recall that Jesus Christ Quoted from Deuteronomy in Mark 12 and verse 29, Jesus said, The first of all commandments is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. One true God. But the agreement on one God does not mean that it is the same God as we shall see tonight. In fact, it is really a lazy mind that accepts Jehovah God of the Bible and Allah of the Koran are the same being without any investigation. I think Robert Moore makes this very clear in his book, The Islamic Invasion. Moore wrote, quote, In the field of comparative religions, it is understood that each of the major religions of mankind has its own peculiar concept of deity. In other words, all religions do not worship the same God, only under different names. The sloppy thinking that would ignore the essential differences which divide world religions is an insult to, to the uniqueness of world religions. Now this quote speaks to the popular uh, perception, and really it is a misconception, held by many Americans, and that is that all of the Quran is the same entity as Jehovah of the Bible, just called by a different name. Isn't it the same God, just a different name? And where would people get that idea? Well, I want you to know that Islam teaches such confusion. In such passages of Surah 2, 136, say, we believe in God and what has been sent down to us and what had been revealed to Abraham and Ishmael and Isaac and Jacob and their progeny, and that which was given to Moses and Christ and to all of the prophets by the Lord. We make no distinction among them and we submit to Him. Is it Muhammad saying that it's the same God? It's just a different name. Surah 29, verse 46, do not argue with the people of the book, that is, Jews and Christians, those that supposedly Allah had dealings with previously, unless in a fair way, apart from those who act wrongly, and say to them, we believe what has been sent down to you. Our God and your God is one, and to Him we submit. This is the premise of Islam, that Allah revealed Islam, sent this message and communicated it to the Jews through the Old Testament prophets. And so in the Koran, you read about Adam and Noah. You read about Abraham and uh, Isaac. You read about Ishmael. All of these stories are told, but they are retold. They are revised. 
to get the picture that somehow all of the Jews were Muslims until a later date when they corrupted their scripture, corrupted that message. And it was corrupted to such a degree that Allah tried again. And so Allah sent the prophet Jesus. Remember, Jesus is a created being. We'll talk more about that in a moment. But Jesus was preaching Islam to the Jews. The Jews didn't have it, but some would follow it. They were Christians. However, they had all kinds of funny ideas, like Jesus was crucified, like Jesus was resurrected. It spurned off another theology, another religion, and it was a corruption of Islam. And so then Allah worked a third time, this time sending Islam to the prophet Muhammad. He spoke to Arabs, and from the Arabs to the rest of the world, and now you have, finally, the true religion, finally, the seal of the prophets Muhammad, finally, the true word. This is the claim of Islam. And if you just buy into this idea that, well, Jehovah and Allah, they're the same God, just by different names, you concede all of this. You concede it. I mean, if it's just semantics, then it's the same God. And if it's the same God, then it's the same message. And if it's the same message, then I guess we should all be Muslims. But I would like us to suspend that assumption for our time together this evening. We need to step beyond our culture's comfort zone of religious relativism and just say, oh, it's all the same God. We, we can't do that. We need to recognize that the claims of these two religions are exclusive. They're opposed to one another. And this point is drastically made when studying Jehovah God of the Bible and Allah of the Koran. Robert Morey, again quoted from Islamic Invasion, uh, frames it up this way. Islam claims that Allah is the same God who was revealed in the Bible. This logically implies in the positive sense that the concept of God set forth in the Koran will correspond in all points to the concept of God found in the Bible. This also implies in the negative sense that if, we, uh, if the Bible and the Koran have differing views of God, then Islam's claim is false. Then it's not all the same God by a different name. But as we begin the investigation, we will notice that the Bible and the Koran do have differing views of God they differ in their nature. They differ in their attributes. They differ in their supreme revelation. And we're going to be talking about these things tonight. So number one here notes as we begin looking at Jehovah and Allah. Jehovah God and Allah have a different nature. That's number one tonight. The Jehovah God and Allah do not correspond. They have a different nature. We are told in the Quran, and quite unequivocally, that Allah's nature is unitarian. That's the word, unitarian, meaning the belief that the deity exists in only one person, according to Webster's Dictionary. This is taught uh, in such places as Surah 4, the latter half of verse 171. So believe in God and His apostles, and do not call Him Trinity. Abstain from this for your good, for God is only one God, and far from His glory is it to beget a son. All that is in the heavens and the earth belongs to Him, and sufficient is God for all help. Unitarian. Don't say Trinity. Surah 9, verse 31. They, they consider their rabbis and monks and the Christ, Son of Mary, to be gods apart from God, even though they had been enjoined to worship only one God, for there is no God but He. Too holy is He for what they ascribe to Him. Well, I have never suggested that rabbis or monks or Mary should be deified, should be worshipped. Yes, I believe that Jesus Christ is the Son of God. And this says that's not so. One God, Unitarian nature. Surah 17, verse 111. 
and say, All praise be to God, who has neither begotten a son, nor has a partner in his kingdom, nor has he need of anyone to protect him from ignominy. So extol him by extolling his majesty. There is no Son of God. There is no Jesus Christ in this understanding. A Unitarian nature. This understanding of Allah's nature, this perspective of monotheism, is safeguarded in Islam by the doctrine of shirk. The doctrine of shirk. Shirk means association. It is the association of anything in the created world with God, with Allah, the Creator. Shirk means taking some aspect of the created world and giving it the worship, giving it the service that Allah alone deserves. Shirk is idolatry. Shirk is association. Shirk is idolatry. Surah 4, verse 48 says this, God does not forgive that compeers be ascribed to Him. Though he may forgive aught else if he please, and he who ascribes compares to God is guilty of the greatest sin. This is shirk. Assigning a companion, assigning a peer to Allah. This is shirk. In Surah 5, verse 72. Surah 5, verse 72. Whosoever associates a compeer with God will have paradise denied to him by God, and his abode shall be held. And the sinners will have none to help them. Disbelievers are they surely who say, God is the third of the Trinity, but there is no God other than God the One. This is shirk. This is shirk. You believe in Trinity? You believe in the triune nature of God? This is shirk. What does shirk mean to you and me, the Christians? It means this. Islam says that Allah created Jesus. Just like Allah created Adam, Jesus is a created being. Surah 3, verse 47. Mary speaking, she said, How can I have a son, O Lord, when no man has touched me? He said, That is how God creates what He wills. When He decrees a thing, He says, Be, and it is. Jesus, created being. Surah 3, verse 59. For God, the likeness of Jesus, is that of Adam, whom He fashioned out of dust and said, Be, and He was. A created being, a created being in Islam. So then confessing Christ as the Son of God, as the Ethiopian treasurer did in Acts 8 and verse 37, is shirk in Islam. The good confession is idolatry. The good confession damns the soul to hell according to Islam. And so it is said in Surah 9 and verse 30, the Christians say Christ is the Son of God. That is what they say with their tongues following assertions made by unbelievers before them. May they be damned by God. How perverse are they? And how serious is it to commit this sin of shirk? It is the unforgivable sin in Islam. Surah 4 verse 48, God does not forgive. Allah does not forgive that compeers be ascribed to Him. Though he may forgive on else if he please, and he who ascribes compares to God is guilty of the greatest sin. It's one of the great challenges of trying to evangelize Muslims. Because when they become Christians, you see what follows? They are out of Islam. And vice versa, to become a Muslim then, where does that place you in the eyes of Jehovah God? To deny Christ. I want you to see that clearly all his nature is Unitarian. Very serious consequences for any who would commit shirk. Very serious consequences for Christians. 
Because the Bible teaches that there is Godhead, a triune nature of God. But this place this is Romans chapter 1 and verse 20. For since the creation of the world, His invisible attributes, His eternal power and divine nature, that is Godhead, have been clearly seen so that they are without excuse. While the Bible affirms there is one God, that one true God does not possess a Unitarian nature. We need to take just a minute and talk about the Bible's revelation of the nature of God. We need to talk about Godhead. It is absolutely true that the word Trinity does not appear in the New Testament. But the word Godhead, the word rendered divine nature, it does. And I believe this word describes the trying nature of the one true God. Godhead, divine nature, is from the Greek word theos. It means deity, divine nature, essence of God. When we speak of the number of persons in the Godhead or divine nature, we speak of the number possessing divinity or deity. I want to share with you a quote from a writer named R.C. Sproul. R.C. Sproul wrote this about the concept of Godhead. He said, there is one essence or being, not three, but there are three distinctive subsisting personalities in the Godhead. The names Father, Son, and Holy Spirit indicate personal distinctions in the Godhead, but not essential divisions in God. Now, I wouldn't agree with everything that Sproul teaches on every subject, but I think this is a very helpful statement of Godhead. I think this statement captures Bible revelation on Godhead concisely. Perhaps better than I can. What I'm going to try and do, though, is draw pictures. <laughs> and I'm going to begin with a triangle. This idea of essence. The one essence of God. The one being. Because the Bible says there's only one God. It says it in Deuteronomy 6, verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. We're not polytheists. We don't believe in many gods. Jesus Quoted it, Mark Clovis 29. But first of all, the commandment is, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God. The Lord is one. James reminds Christians of this truth in James 2 and verse 19. You believe that there is one God? You do well. Even the demons believe and tremble. You understand there's one God? Well, you're on the same page with demons. And James would have us go on from there to have a perfected faith. But it starts with an understanding. There's one God. God is. I am. That means He is being. He has essence. Now, there's no reason for us to think uh, on that being in terms of atoms or molecules or matter because He transcends all of that. He created all of that. We're told God is spirit as opposed to any matter. So whatever His makeup, whatever His essence, whatever His being, there's only one. There's only one God. And this God is expressed to us in Scripture, revealed to us in Scripture, in three distinct personalities. Three distinct personalities. The divine nature of the Godhead consists of three personalities, each possessing all attributes of divinity of deity. Let me show this to you in some Scriptures. One of the personalities is Father. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 3, Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So here is Father who is God. God's Father. The second is the Son. Hebrews 1, verse 8. But to the Son, he says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. A scepter of righteousness is a scepter of your kingdom. 
Here is God speaking through the psalmist, as the Hebrew writer quotes it, and God addresses the Son as God. So you have God the Son. The third personality, the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, verses 1 through 4. Here Ananias is confronted by the Apostle Peter for lying to God. God who? He lied to the Holy Spirit. Acts 5, verse 1, Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit? You have not lied to men, but to God. Peter, you don't lie to me, you lie to the Holy Spirit. And when you lie to the Holy Spirit, you lie to God. All three are God. But they are distinct. They are personal from one another. That is to say that God the Son isn't God the Father. Join with me in your Bible to the book of John in the 8th chapter, please. John chapter 8. We might just notice a couple of passages here in the Gospel of John. God the Son isn't God the Father. We're told here, Jesus says, the Father sent the Son. Jesus came to do the Father's will. John 8, verse 28. Then Jesus said to them, when you lift up the Son of Man, then you will know that I am He. And that I do nothing of myself, but as my Father taught me, I speak these things. And He who sent me is with me. The Father has not left me alone, for I always do those things that please Him. In John 12 and verse 48. John 12 and verse 48. He who rejects me and does not receive my words has that which judges him. The word that I have spoken will judge him in the last day. For I have not spoken on my own authority, but the Father who sent me gave me a command, what I should say and what I should speak. The Father sent the Son. Furthermore, the Son returned to the Father. John 16, verse 7. A little later on, as Jesus is having His discourse there on the night of His betrayal, with the eleven in John 16, verse 7, He says, Nevertheless, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the Helper will not come to you. But if I depart, I will send Him to you. He is going to the Father. He's going to send the Helper, the Holy Spirit. So Jesus Christ is in the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit's coming, He says. He will send Him. Distinct personality. And then the last part to talk about is that one of these personalities, one of these co-equal and co-eternal personalities, the Son, became flesh, had a physical body, Jesus Christ. We're taught this in John 1 and verse 1, and then in verse 14, in John 1 verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Verse 14, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory is of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. Jesus became flesh. God became flesh. First Timothy 3, verse 16, Without controversy, great is the mystery of godliness. God was manifested in the flesh. Became flesh. A physical body. And so then I put these together like this. One God, one essence, one being, of three co-equal, co-eternal personalities, one of which submitted and played a role involving manifestation in physical flesh, ultimately to walk among us and to endure trial and to temptation, even going to the cross to lay down His life as an appeasing sacrifice to God for sin, that He may type that life up again and know the glory 
resurrection. Now, it's really this third part of the revelation of Jesus Christ in the New Testament that makes Godhead, or an understanding of the triune nature of God, inescapable. I think it is certainly hinted at in the Old Testament. You open up your Bible to Genesis 1.1, and what does it say? Uh, In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. And you do a little bit of study of God there, and it is Elohim, Genesis 1.1, which is the plural of the Hebrew word for God. And we think plural... Well, it's hinting at, I believe, the triune nature. In Genesis 1, verse 26, God says, Let us make man in our image. Who's us? Who's our? I believe it's hinting in a triune nature. But it's certainly clear and inescapable by listening to Jesus himself. Is your Bible still open to John? Let's look back to the 8th chapter then. In John 8, and verse 24. In John chapter 8, and verse 24, Jesus claimed to be God. Therefore I said to you that you will die in your sins, for if you do not believe that I am He, you will die in your sins. Now the interesting thing about this, at least in the New King James Bible, and I think in most of yours, is that He in that verse is capital H-E, and it is italicized. Meaning that the English translators have put it there to help us understand the rendering, the teaching of the text. So what's it say if you take that word out? Unless you believe that, I am you will die in your sins. And the translators understood who I am meant, meant God. That's why they put capital H-E. I am He. They understand what He was saying. He's saying, I'm God. Look at, look at verse 58 of the same chapter. Jesus said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Then they took up stones to throw at Him. Jesus hid Himself and went out of the temple, going through the midst of them, and so passed by. Why do they want to stone him? Because he said, I am. He looked at a group of Jews and made himself out to be God. But in claiming to be God, he doesn't say, I'm God and the Father's not. Instead, he says, I and my Father are one. Look at John 10, verse 30. John 10, verse 30. I and my Father are one. Then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, Many good works I have shown you from my Father. For which of those works do you stone me? The Jews answered him, saying, For a good work we do not stone you, but for blasphemy. And because you, being a man, make yourself God. You see the reaction that he got. They understood at the time what he was saying. He's saying he's God. Jesus is God. The Father is God. The Spirit is God. So we have these these scriptural formulas in such places as Matthew 28 and verse 19. When he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, uh, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And it's so interesting that these things should be equated on the same line like that. Father, Son, Holy Spirit. How can you do that? Because they're all God. 2 Corinthians 13, verse 14. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Again, this equating because they are God. They're God. The triune nature of God is the Bible's stand on Jehovah's nature and being. He is one. And he is Godhead. And while Godhead may be a challenging concept for us to grasp, I think it is no less biblical. I don't believe that we are in the place to criticize or place limitations on God's nature or a revelation of His nature 
Because our understanding is limited. Our understanding is finite. God is infinite. And the passage that helps me keep this in perspective is Isaiah 55, verse 8, so I share it with you. Where God says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, nor are your ways my ways, says the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. But I do want you to see this. Understand this. That what we have demonstrated is Jehovah God, revealed in the Bible, and Allah, revealed in the Quran, do not correspond in nature. They have different natures. They are not the same God, only known by a different name. The second difference is this. Jehovah and Allah have different attributes. Number two in your notes, Jehovah and Allah have different attributes. We said, well, if this claim that they're the same God just by different names is true, they need to correspond in all points. They do not correspond in nature. How do they do in attributes? Well, let's build a chart and let's see. In the Bible, we're told that Jehovah God is love. God is love, 1 John 4 and verse 8. We're told that God initiated love. We did not love God, but He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. And and, uh, please catch this. When you look at Romans chapter 5 and verse 8, it's one of the great messages of the New Testament of Jehovah God that He loves sinners, that He loves enemies. Romans 5 verse 8 says this, God demonstrates His own love toward us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Not because we were so great and so holy and so perfect, but, but despite our sin and wretchedness, He loved us. Sent Jesus to die for us. Sent Jesus to save us. God is love, not Allah. With Allah, there's no love for enemies. With Allah, there's no love for disbelievers. Allah is not love. In Surah 3, verse 32, say, Obey God and His messenger. And if they refuse, then remember, God does not love disbelievers. Allah doesn't love enemies. Allah doesn't love disbelievers. You need to get yourself straight and start loving Allah to know His blessing. He doesn't initiate love to you. That's a big difference. The God of the Bible, Jehovah God, is relational. The Bible says that we can know God, have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Indeed, we can have an adoption as sons. That's a family relationship. That's that's an amazing intimacy to think that by Jesus Christ, you can be a child of the Most High Creator of God. In fact, I love how John expresses it. I believe it's in 1 John chapter 3, verse number 1, where he just seems to be overcome in writing, Behold what manner of love the Father has bestowed on us, that we should be called children of God. Amen and amen. But Allah, Allah has no children. He is non-relational. One of the teachings of Islam is that Allah has 99 names of beauty, 99 beautiful names, appellations. You know, Father is not on the list. Not in 99 names. He's never called Father. Surah 5, verse 18. 
say the Jews and the Christians, we are sons of God and beloved of Him. Say, why does He punish you then for your sins? No, you are only mortals of His creation. He can punish whom He please and pardon whom He will. For God's is the kingdom of the heavens and the earth and all that lies between them and everything will go back to Him. Those Jews and Christians are way off saying that they might have an affiliation with God. Because Allah has no children. He is distanced. He is transcendent. He is an unaffiliated creator of mortals that he may arbitrarily deal with. Looking at this passage, God of the Bible is trustworthy. Talk a little bit more about this kind of arbitrary revelation of himself. Trustworthy. Yeah, because God says what he means and he he means what He says. We come to the Bible and we see that forever, O Lord, Your words are settled in heaven. We see in John 10, verse 35, that Scripture cannot be broken. You don't break God's Word. You can trust Him. He keeps His Word. The God of the Bible has never spoken an idle or mistaken word. But Allah's Word, Allah's Word has been changed. Allah's Word has been changed uh, by corruption from outside forces, if you believe what they say. Allah's Word has changed when He fancies it. And Allah changes His Word for His friends. He changes His Word, His law, for Muhammad. Remember, we talked about this a little bit last night. Surah 4 and verse 3. And, and what this does is show us an unpredictable, a capricious, arbitrary nature. He will change His Word for His friends. In Surah 4 verse 3, Here's the law laid down for Muslims. Marry women who are lawful for you. For Muslim men, I should say. Marry women who are lawful for you. Two, three, or four. But if you fear you cannot treat so many with equity, marry only one. Or a maid or a captive. This is better than being iniquitous. How many wives can a Muslim man have? A Muslim man can have four wives, according to the Koran. But for Muhammad, Surah 33, verse 36... No believing men and women have any choice in a matter after God and His Apostle have decided it. Whoever disobeys God and His Apostle has clearly lost the way and gone astray. Now, we saw last night some of the surahs that allowed Muhammad to take as many for wives as he wanted. And that was okay with Allah. What I'm introducing here as we look at Surah 33, verses 36 through 38, is a particular case, a particular instance. This verse speaks to a situation where Muhammad had an adopted son named Zaid. And Zaid was just madly in love with this uh, Arabian gal named Zainab. But there was a problem. In Arabia, there was this strong caste system. Zainab was a wealthy, higher caste lady. And Zaid was quite low socially. Muhammad didn't necessarily have a, a social status to begin with. And, and then on top of that, Zaid's this adopted son of Muhammad. Well, Muhammad knew that Zayed wanted her. And luckily enough, being the prophet, Allah told him that he could decree that the two of them could be wed. And that, according to the Hadith, is where these verses fit in. No believing men and women have any choice in the matter after God and His Apostle have decided it. Whoever disobeys God and His Apostle has clearly lost the way and gone astray. And Muhammad declared that the two of them could be wed. And so they were. They hadn't been wed a very long time, though, because before it became apparent, at least to Allah's eye through Muhammad, that the two of them shouldn't be together. And instead of Zainab being married to Zaid, Zainab should be married to Muhammad. 
Sarah 33, verse 37. When you said to him who had been favored by God and was favored by you, keep your wife to yourself and fear God, you were hiding something God was about to bring to light. For you had fear of men, though you should fear God more. What's going on? Well, obviously Muhammad had been telling Zaid, keep your wife to yourself and just follow Allah. But in doing that, Muhammad was being fearful of what people would say, of what men would think. And Muhammad was, was, was hiding something that Allah was about to reveal and about to do. wonder what it was. Surah 33, verse 37, the verse continues. And when Zaid was through with her, the son being done with her, we gave her to you in marriage, so that it may not remain a sin for the faithful to marry the wives of their adopted sons when they are through with them. God's command is to be fulfilled. So Zaid wasn't supposed to have her anymore. Allah said he was done with her. And now Muhammad is supposed to marry her to set a new precedent that you could have an incestuous relationship and that would be okay. Surah 33, verse 38. There is no constraint on the prophet in what God has decreed for him. This has been the way of God with apostles who have gone before you. God's command is a determined act. No constraint indeed. When you consider what the Bible talks about those kinds of relationships, and it does. Amos 2 and verse 7, a terrible pollution in Israel was that a man and his son would have the same woman. In 1 Corinthians 5 verse 1, the church at Corinth is called down. Why? Because a man and his son have had the same woman, and this is an abomination with God forever. But in this instance, in one of these wives... Islam has changed, the law has changed, so that he can have another wife, and at that, his son's wife. Allah is absolute and quite unpredictable. And finally, Jehovah God of the Bible is active in history. What do I mean by that? I mean that Jesus Christ is willing to leave the sanctuary of heaven to take an active role as man in the salvation of the world. He knew flesh. He walked the earth. He shed his blood. He left heaven for the hill of Calvary. Not so with Allah. Allah is passive this way in history. Allah always works removed. Always works from a distance. There's an angel, or there's a prophet, or there is his word, the Koran, something coming from Muhammad. But he is never the Word. He is never incarnate. And he certainly never sacrifices himself for his creation. What we demonstrate in this comparison is that God and Allah have different attributes. This is not the same God known by different names. And third and finally tonight, Jehovah and Allah have a different supreme revelation. A different supreme revelation. The supreme revelation of Jehovah God, it is Himself. It is God in flesh. It is Jesus Christ, the person of Jesus Christ. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verses 1 through 3, we see here, look to Jesus God, who at various times and in various ways spoken time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by His Son, whom He has appointed heir of all things, through whom also He made the worlds, 
who being the brightness of His glory and the express image of His person, and upholding all things by the word of His power, when He had by Himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of majesty on high, Jesus Christ. That's how God made Himself known perfectly and clearly and finally. Jesus Christ was the Emmanuel of prophecy. God with us. As Jesus walked the earth, His unique ministry revealed God. His very being revealed God because He was the Son of God. He was God incarnate. Casey Moser wrote this, what Jesus is, what He taught, what He did, how He felt towards sinners, how He sacrificed Himself for us. In all these things, He reveals Himself and the Father. By His life, Jesus glorified God. It could not have been otherwise. For in Him dwelleth all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. Hence, if we would know what God would say, listen to Jesus. If we would know what the Father would do, watch the Son. If we would know how God feels toward humanity, learn of Christ. In short, if we would know God, know Christ. And so Jesus revealed God by His teachings. We could look at His parables in Matthew 13 or Luke 15. Parables commonly defined as an earthly story with a heavenly meaning. And we marvel at Jesus' ability to communicate profound spiritual truths in relatable illustrations. It's just, it's just unparalleled. And what he revealed was the value and the values of God's kingdom. He revealed that God is a loving Father, always seeking that lost sheep, that lost coin, that lost son. And this was being accomplished even then through Jesus Christ and subsequently it was accomplished by the proclamation of the Gospel. But it is for all in good news a message to be reconciled to the Father that the Father is looking for you and has shed the blood. The blood has been shed by Jesus Christ for you to be found, for you to be saved. Jesus revealed God by His dealings with men. The Bible says that Jehovah worked through Jesus in unique ways. And studying the interactions of Jesus with others shows more than good works and godliness. Jesus' actions manifest God. In John 5 and verse 19, it says, Then Jesus answered and said to them, Most assuredly I say to you, the Son can do nothing of Himself. But what he sees the Father do, for whatever he does, the Son also does in like manner. Watch me. You're watching God. On the other hand, you have Allah. And his supreme revelation is a book. It's the Quran. The extent of his manifestation is allowing people to read about Him and how great He is. And Muslims contend that the Quran is like Allah, that the Quran is uncreated and the Quran is perfect in every way. Surah 85, verses 21 and 22. You recall the doctrine of uncreatedness. We talked about it Sunday night. This is indeed the glorious Quran preserved in the guarded tablet and the words of the Quran have existed forever in these tablets in paradise. That's what Muhammad recited. Surah 41, verse 41 and 42. Those who reject the reminder when it has come to them should know that it is a book in the 
Falsehood cannot enter it from any side. It's a revelation from the all-wise and praiseworthy God. This uncreated idea cannot be defended as we've already seen. Specifically in that lesson that I explained the Bible and the Koran, we talked about contradiction and we talked about inaccuracy. We talked about repetition. And we've seen again and again and again that Allah abrogates, changes His mind and just do what was spoken at the last. There's not consistency. There's nothing in Islam that compares to Jehovah God's manifestation in Jesus Christ or could even begin to contend with that sacrifice for the world. Instead, what Muslims do is just deny that it ever happened or ever could happen. Instead of competing, they just say, no, you're wrong. Jesus wasn't crucified. And no, you're wrong. Jesus wasn't resurrected. This is a significant difference between Jehovah and Allah. It should convince all they're not the same God. Jehovah or Allah, there is one God. Who is Jehovah? Who is Allah? Are they one and the same, really named differently? Now, we've learned that there are profound consequences stemming from your answers. If they're the same being, they're called by different names, Islam's most prominent pillar is recognized, We'd better convert to Islam tonight. But instead we demonstrated that Jehovah and God have different natures, that they have different attributes, that they have different supreme revelations. They don't correspond. They're not the same God known by different names. And because those claims are independent and exclusive of each other, one God is the Creator and one is the false God. One will bring you to life. One will lead you to torment. This is a question of eternal consequence. Who do you believe is God? Who will you follow? I hope it is Jesus Christ. It's my desire to persuade men and women to know, to love, and to serve the one true God, Jehovah God. And if there is one tonight who needs to come to that Savior, to confess their faith that Jesus is the Son of God, to be immersed for the remission of their sins, that they might be reconciled to God, taking advantage of that love and reconciliation freely offered. We'd like to help you with that at this time, and we invite you to come forward and make your spiritual need known. And together we stand and sing. Won't you come?